0: If you have been here, uh, with us at all, checking with us this year, you know that we've been taking a journey, our journey through the biblical narrative. We started way back in the beginning and we've been working our way through, all the way through the, uh, the Hebrew writings and all the way into, lately we've been into um, the, the uh, story the time period of the kings of Israel. And Israel began its centralized government. They moved into their new land and they were a conglomeration of tribes with various rescuers and judges. And then they at some point decided to come together with a centralized authority and government and they made a king. Uh, Saul was the first king. And Saul became, uh, seemed like a great guy at first, and then things went really downhill from there as the years went by. At some point, Samuel the prophet privately anointed young David to be the future king. And then David was discovered nationally, his music, his, um, his uh, battlefield uh, uh, exploits, and he became a leader. He married King Saul's daughter. The nation loved him. Everything was well until Saul became insecure and jealous and began to try to kill David because he was concerned about him, and, and basically Saul just quit trying to I mean he, he, he lost track of, of his, his kingdom. he began to just to chase his uh, this political threat to him so hard that he he really quit um, governing Israel very well at that time. and uh, David had to eventually leave the country and go to the Philistines where he... He was able to stay with his—he had 600 men who had joined him, and the 600 of them plus um, their wives and children all moved to the Philistines' country, which is—that was their enemy. Those were the ones that David first fought against and killed their champion, Goliath, from Gath. And David actually moves to Gath, of all places. Uh, But the king there is glad to have him because he's at odds with the king of Israel, and Israel was their enemy, so you help out your enemy's enemy. So David's living there in exile, and this goes on for years. And for years, David's there doing uh, military exploits to help the Philistines with their surrounding enemies, and uh, at the same time uh, uh, pretending to be loyal to them over Israel, but hoping to get back home one day. And so we've been on this journey, and for the last few weeks we've been into this season of David's life, this season of Saul the king and David the fugitive. And today and last week is a two-part conversation that we're having that's just the end game of that particular season of David's life. It all comes to a head Yes, last Sunday and today. And so just a little bit of a review so we can tie it together. Last week we saw that the Philistines decided to get all their armies together, and all the kings of Philistia pulled their people, and they decided to march on Israel in a way they had not done in our recorded uh, notes yet uh, in, in the Hebrew writings. They came, brought all their forces together. And Israel forms together to defend themselves, but it looks bad. And at some point in the middle of all of that, um, David, I'm sorry, Saul, the king, he's praying to God. He's saying, God, who is, you know, what's going on? God, would you please, um, you know, help me? And, and there's no answer. So he turns to the occult. He turns to a medium to have a seance. And in the seance, he has asked the woman to call back the spirit of the deceased prophet Samuel and says, Samuel, I'm looking for direction. And Samuel's like, why are you bothering me? I'm on the other side now. But if you want to know what's going on, you're in trouble. You're going to lose the battle tomorrow, and you and your sons are going to die, and you're going to be with me on the other side, so see you soon. And that was the conversation he had with the dead prophet. So that was not encouraging. Saul is at the end. He has 24 hours or less to live now. And so, as we, as we read that story last week, I, I want to remind you that we, we made some application because Saul has been for years, for years, doing the, the wrong thing as a leader. For years, he's been, uh, you know, the prophets have warned him. Um, he's had his bad moments, but no matter what he's done wrong, he's still the king. He's still in control. And it seems like nothing was catching up to him, just the promise that one day it would catch up to him. And then it happened. Then it happened. And I said this last week as a principle, is the principle of slowly and then suddenly. We talked about it last week, that slowly and suddenly is kind of a life principle that has both a negative and a positive application. And we saw the negative application last week with Saul that he was doing the wrong thing over and over and nothing was, nothing was catching up to him. But one day, suddenly, he's told, you're gonna die today in battle. You're gonna die tomorrow's, in tomorrow's battle. And suddenly it was over slowly and then suddenly. And we applied that. We, we said that you never know how close it is until it happens. And so what do we mean by this? In a negative sense, what we mean is this, that there is almost always a delay between our choices and their consequences. There's almost always a delay and we talked about this in a few different arenas and just reviewing for a moment about like with our health, we can abuse our bodies and substance abuse or just not taking care of it and what we eat or how we, how we uh, exercise it. We can, we can mistreat our bodies and our health and for a long time feel like there's no fallout from doing so because I'm doing as fine as I've always done. I don't feel any worse. But it's usually slowly than suddenly. At some point, those choices catch up and, and suddenly the, the news comes suddenly something changes. We talked about our financial uh, care, how we can, we can be neglectful with being responsible, and maybe for a while there's no real, there's no real fallout from that. We're, we're doing as well as most people are. But at some point when something happens and the floor drops out, those things come home fast, oftentimes slowly than suddenly. We talked about our relationships. You can neglect a relationship or you can be mean in a relationship and perhaps the person can put up with it and things can be okay or it can seem like everyone just takes you for who you are and there's no real consequences until suddenly a relationship comes crashing down and it doesn't always happen right away. It's often slowly and then suddenly. There's almost always a delay between our choices and their consequences. I'd like to ask you today to say this with me if you would. Let's let's all read this together. Ready? there is almost always a delay between our choices and their consequences. And that's what we saw in Saul's life last week. In fact, we've said this, that the delay, that the delay convinces us that consequences will never come. Because, hey, it hasn't bit me so far. And so we, we are fooled because it's often slowly and then suddenly. So we saw that with Saul last week. And as we finish today's story, and really as we finish this season of David's life, this end game moment, I want us to see it from the other side today. So we're going to shift to David's perspective for today. So what's going on with David? Well, David is being told by the Philistines, you've got to come with us to fight against your old country. You're living here. You've been helping us. You're coming to battle with us. And David's in a tough spot because he doesn't want to go fight against his nation. He loves his nation. He's on exile because Saul's trying to kill him. But he doesn't want to fight them. But at the same time, if he goes and he turns against the Philistines while he's surrounded by them, that could be a pretty bad outcome too. So what do you do? And and even no matter what happens, it's just bad optics for a war to go on where where people of your nation are going to die and you're seen arriving with the other team. So there's just nothing good about David's situation. But he says, okay, let's go because he has no choice. And his men, and and they leave their wives and their children in their city. Uh, uh, King Achish had given... David and his men, a city called the city of Ziklag, a town, a town of Ziklag, that that's where they all lived. And they left their wives and kids behind, and they got their weapons and their armor and all their stuff. They had to haul around, and they went with the Philistines to face Israel, not wanting to be there. And that's where we left things hanging, and let's continue the story today. Verse number 2. As the Philistine rulers, 1 Samuel 29, 2, as the Philistine rulers were leading out their troops in groups of hundreds and thousands, David and his men marched at the rear with King Achish. But the Philistine commanders, the Philistine kings and leaders of the other cities, they were, they were upset. They demanded, what are these Hebrews doing here? In other words, we're going to go fight the Hebrews. Why would you bring them with us? <laughs> you know, that's, that's not a very good move. What are they doing here at this battle with you? And Achish said, this is David, the servant of King Saul of Israel. He's been with me for years. Folks, it's been years since David's been in exile. Years. And he says, David's been with me for years, and I've never found a single fault in him from the day he arrived until today. So in other words, in Achish's mind, he's a great, I mean, you know how great of a soldier he is. And they're like, yeah, we know how great of a soldier he is because he used to be fighting against us until he defected because of the king trying to kill him. We don't want him here. So the Philistine commanders were angry They said, send him back to the town you've given him. Send him back to Ziklag, they demanded. He can't go into battle with us. What if he turns against us in the battle and becomes our adversary? Is there any better way for him to reconcile himself with his master than by handing our heads over to him? And by the way, I wonder if there's a little bit of muscle memory there. Because they would have remembered years ago when their champion Goliath fought against this very David, and David killed him and literally handed his head over to King Saul. And they're like, do you want him to fight against us and maybe hand our heads over? I mean, seriously, are you really trying to bring him to battle? In fact, they even added this thought. They said, isn't this the same David about whom the women of Israel sing in their dances? Like Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Remember that song? It's kind of catchy. It's trending on the iTunes charts right now. Like, listen, that song's about us killing us. And I don't want him in battle supposedly with us against his old nation. Send him back to Ziklag until the battle's over. So, so what happens is King Achish has got to come back to David and say, ah, man, I'm sorry. The guys don't want you to go with us to fight. They're afraid you're going to turn against us and fight for Israel. And David's like, what? You know, they're worried about it. So, you know, listen, I know you, but you got to go back home and you can't be here. Um, we'll let you know when the battle's over. And David's like, darn the luck, okay, whatever. So he, he goes back home. And I think it's a mixed bag for David, if I could just project a little bit here. In one sense, no doubt he's relieved to be pulled out of this very awkward situation. No doubt he's relieved. But on the other side, he's he's been a fighter. He loves his nation. He sees this massive army. He knows his weakened nation is in trouble. And he's being sent far away to the other side to just wait to see what happens without being able to help. So I feel like in a lot of ways, it's a mixed bag. But he heads back home to their families. And that's where we pick up our main story today in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says three days later, When David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites, that's another uh, group of cities that conglomerate together to form a, a, a force, these Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag, And they had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. So this is their city. They're coming back to their families. And and the, and the city's been conquered by the Amalekites, who apparently, as we read here and elsewhere, the Amalekites have been conquering lots of cities of the Philistines and lots of cities in Israel, specifically the tribe of Judah, which is where David happened to be from. David was from Bethlehem of Judah. And um, they're conquering cities of Israel and conquering cities or towns, I should say, towns of Israel and towns of the Philistines and stealing their plunder and burning them down. Now does anybody here, I'm, I'm gonna ask participation for a second and no one's gonna, you don't, don't you'll have to answer, but does anyone here want to offer an explanation as to why the Amalekites would feel so emboldened at this time to conquer in, in city, towns of Israel and of the Philistines. Why would they be doing this? Exactly. Because the Philistine army is not there. Anyone who could fight is going to the war. So the town is full of women, children, young and older and, and weak, and just people who can't, who can't fight. So, at the, at, so, the, men are, so the, the soldiers are gone. The towns are easy pickings. And the Israelite towns are easy pickings too because they've all come together to fight back. So they're just saying, "Woohoo! no one's there. And they're looting everybody. They're just enlarging their riches and their spoils. And they've come to the city of Ziklag where David's men are supposed to be way at war. And they've burned it to the ground. And can you imagine how David and his men felt as they rode up or walked up? I picture writing as I'm old, old Westerns or something. I don't know. They're walking up to the t- city. I wonder they were riding on. I don't know. Um, they they uh, walk back to their city. As they get close to Ziklag and, and perhaps they see the smoke billowing from the city. Or something's obviously wrong. Can you imagine how they must have felt, how you would feel if if it happened to your home or to your neighborhood or to your town when you were away and you came home? I mean, they realize that their families are there and something bad happened. They begin to pick up their pace. Their heart is racing. There's a knot in their stomach. And they get close to see what happened. Verse number two says that the Amalekites had carried off the women and children and everyone else but without killing anyone. So they're probably relieved to not find any bodies. You're probably expecting to find the bodies of your loved ones laying there in the destroyed city, and there are none. So in one sense, that's a relief. But in the other sense, that means they've been taken prisoner, captive, as slaves of these people who took them to to make them slaves or traffic them or whatever, doing who knows what to your wives and children going forward. They're gone. They've lost their whole families. They're alive. They're not dead. But in some ways, does this feel better? Does this feel worse? And they're so upset. It says, when David and his men saw the ruins and they realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. They were so upset that they just wept until there were no more tears to cry. You know what I'm talking about when grief hits you so hard? They were devastated says, David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. David lost people. All of his men lost wives and children. They all are grieving together. And if that's not bad enough, verse 6 says that David was now in great danger. Why? Because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and their daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. David's men have done what we all do through seasons of grief. If you've ever gone through deep grief, there's just stages of grief. And some of those stages can come one after another in rapid order. Sometimes they can come over a long period of time, oftentimes both. And they've gone from weeping until they could weep no more to being very angry. And in the middle of their anger, they become bitter towards David and decide to play the blame game. You know, we've been here for years because you brought us here. Well, you chose to stay. You you know, we we went to the battle because you said we had to. And maybe they never blamed him before that moment. But when you're lost, at a loss, it's easy to want to process your emotional anguish by assigning blame. But I've said this before. I'll say it again. That is so unhelpful. There's nothing helpful or productive or wholesome that comes from the blame game. And what we tend to do, right, is when we are grieving and we're emotionally upset, we we either blame ourselves or we blame somebody else. We blame ourselves and we have guilt and self-loathing, or we blame somebody else and we're angry against them because we're just upset. But the blame game does not do anything to move forward. It's it's a natural tendency to to have immediately, but we should not stay there very long or we become very unhealthy. And David and his men are very upset right now and they're going to kill David. And David is at his absolute lowest moment of his life right now. I mean, if if it's been bad all along for David as a fugitive running for his life, this is the low spot. If, If just seeing... His country, his king turn against him, seeing people abandon him, seeing people turn him in to try to get him killed before he leaves the country. Watch those who helped him be murdered by the king. Being in exile, waiting for God to turn it around, and then you, you're tired of waiting. Like, okay, enough's enough. I've, believed, I've trusted this long, but it's been years now. Come on now. Or in this moment, his family's been taken ca- captive, and they're gone. And now the men that have been loyal to him want to kill him, and he's about to die possibly. David is right now at the lowest moment of his entire— and it's been a whole bad season, but this is the low spot. And what do you do when you get to that spot in your life where you've tried to to be tough and be strong and and do the right thing, and then it's just that that spot where time takes its toll and one more thing goes wrong and capitulation is right there. That time-based capitulation, right? Like, I'm just done. I can't do it anymore. I'm I'm finished. I've trusted you, God, but I just, this is too much. That's where David could be at right now. But I love the rest of verse 6. It says, But David found strength in the Lord his God. And this is what David's been doing all along, amazingly. In fact, when we first started tracking his years of running from Saul, we read that beautiful song that he wrote in Psalms 27 where David said, I would have fainted along the way if I didn't believe that I would live to see God's goodness in my lifetime. And then he made a statement to himself and to all of us when he said, wait patiently for the Lord. He said, be brave and courageous and he will strengthen your heart. Wait patiently for the Lord. And David, once again, in a moment where you would expect him to capitulate and finally give up, he once again finds strength in the Lord his God. And it says in verse number eight that David asked the Lord, Should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And, and so David is bothering to pray. And I know how easy it can be to say, I, I, I can't pray. I'm too upset to pray. I've just got too much on my mind, or maybe I'm a little frustrated towards God. So what's the point? But David says, Lord, in this moment of this lowest of low moments, what should I do? Give me some direction. Let me know what's next. Should I pursue? And the Lord told him, Yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. So David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook Bezor. Now, this is a moment that we would rush past because if you and I are ever traveling and we come to a body of water, we tend to just drive over the bridge. You don't think about the fact that crossing bodies of water, especially moving water, was always a whole ordeal. And so it's just a thing that you mention because you got to do it. David doesn't come to this spot, and they're tired. Think about it. They had gone several days towards the battle with the Philistines. They got sent back several days later. They've been traveling for like a week to come home and find their families are taken and their city is burned. And they've been emotionally drained and physically drained. They are spent. And they come to this brook, and they got to cross it over, and then they got to pursue maybe a, 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 a hopeless pursuit. But David said, let's go. It says in verse 10, but 200 of the men were just too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with the other 400 men. 200 men said, guys, we just were too exhausted emotionally, physically. And so David and his men, it doesn't say it here, but we see it elsewhere, that David and his men decided to to lighten their equipment load. Because they've been carrying it back to battle and forth, and they can't leave it at Ziklag. And they decide to leave some of their, of their equipment with these 200 men so they can move a little more quickly and more nimbly to pursue the people who took their family. And the 400 men who are going forward, they're exhausted too. But they're like, we got to do it, man. But the other 200 guys that like, we can't. We'll watch the stuff. But we're, we're just too upset and too tired. So the other 400 continue. Well, along the way, they find a man laying on the ground as they continue their pursuit. And, and they, they give him some water and some food because he's very sick. And as they treat his condition, they find out that he was a slave of those Amalekites who, who looted their city. And he was a slave of theirs and, and an Egyptian man. And as they treated people who they enslaved, like property they don't care about, they had left him along the way because he grew sick and he was slowing them down. So they found him still alive. They, they nursed him. And then they said to him, what's going on? And, and he tells them about the group that took their families. And they said, can you show us where they're going next? Can you take us to them? And the man said, I, I will if you don't kill me. They're like, you got a deal. So it says in verse 16 that he led David to them. And they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder that they had taken from the Philistines and from the land of Judah. They feel safe. The the Amalekites are journeying to wherever they're going next and they feel safe to to party. Why? Because they got away with a lot of loot and a lot of people that they've stolen and enslaved and a lot of livestock and a lot of goods. And no one knows about it, right? Because everyone's at war. No one knows about it because they're all out fighting the war that's just brewing. But by the time they ever figure out what happened back home, they're all long gone. So they feel very secure. They have no idea that David had gone back early. And that was very fortuitous or very God-ordained to even have a chance. They have no idea anyone's even aware of what they've done. They're partying. They're drinking and celebrating and dancing in the fields. And as David and his men watch what's happening, as they watch what's going on, knowing their families are captive there and these men are just... Living in revelry, they get become so angry. All that grief and processing turns to a deep burning anger. And honestly, it turns into a bloodlust. And it says in verse 17 that David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout the night. That night and the entire next day until evening. It took a whole day, but they just went off. says none of the Amalekites escaped except for 400 young men who who were able to flee on camels. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. And this is a big moment. This is a big moment because now David has, has, you know, he went from losing it all and being ready to be killed for it to getting it all back but not just getting it all back so much more verse 9 uh, verse 20 says he also recovered all the flocks and the herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock the plunder belongs to David they said so all those other cities these Amalekites have taken from and burned and have, have destroyed When they got their families back, they also got all this other stuff. David not only went from losing it all to getting it back, but he is now wealthier by this victory than he has ever been in his entire life. And his men are celebrating. They have just, it's completely a 180. They've turned it all around just like that. Well, It says verse number 21 that when David returned to the brook Bezor and he met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with him. And they went out to meet David and his men, and David greeted them joyfully. They're just happy. They're cheering like, wow, you guys did it. There's our families. Look at all this plunder. Wow, this is amazing. And David's happy. Everyone's happy. Well, not everyone's happy. Verse 22 says, but some evil troublemakers among David's men said, hey, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder that we recovered. Give them their wives and children and tell them to be gone. Now, before we give these guys a hard time, I get it. I do. Right? Don't you? Like, they're saying, y'all were just too tired to go help us, and and we could have used the extra help. We lost a third of our group because you didn't go with us so we had to go do it without you. We were tired too. We were grieving too. But we went and did it. And so yes, we, we managed to get the job done, no thanks to you. And now we're coming back with all this extra that we could have died, but instead we, we won. We're going to share the, the, our earnings with you who did nothing. That's not a very good principle. Cap- capitalism, come on. You know what I mean? Seriously, like you didn't do anything. You didn't work. You don't get the food. I mean, they're very upset. So I get, I get it all. I understand the tension. But here's what they're saying. Take your wives and your kids. By the way, you're welcome. We brought them back to you so you can have them back. But you're off the island. Get out of here. And I think a little greed's setting in because now they didn't only get things back, but they got so much more. And they're like, we don't want to divide it amongst 200 more people. We did the work. They didn't do the work. Here's your families. Be gone. You're welcome, by the way. This is our stuff. But David speaks up in verse 23. David said, no, no, my brothers. Don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and he has helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. In other words, David said, listen, buddy, guys, come on now. You're you're looking at this through the wrong lens. And haven't we all looked at things in life through the wrong lens? I get in more trouble in my lifetime whenever I get in the wrong mindset. And David said, you got the wrong lane of thinking Because you're thinking that you went out there and you fought and you earned this victory and all the the, the proceeds that come from it. But David said, you're missing the point that God made that possible. Just a little while ago, you were grieving that it was hopelessly lost and nothing could be done. And then we prayed and asked God what to do. And God gave us back a chance we never dreamed we'd have to get it all back. But we couldn't have gotten it back without his help, without his strength, Without the opportunity, he gave us the opportunity and the strength to do it. It is God's grace that we got our stuff back. And how can we take God's grace and say, there's no grace for you. I'll take unmarriage in favor, but you can't have any. David says, we're not going to operate that way. You didn't earn this. You didn't build this. You didn't do anything. You just, you just did your thing. And God made it possible. He said, David continues. He says, who's going to listen to you when you talk like this? We share, and we share alike. Those who go to the battle and those who guard the equipment. Such a brilliant statement. David said those guys who stayed behind did serve a purpose. They kept our stuff safe so we could travel lighter. I know it's not as important as what you did at the battle. But this has almost got a certain vibe, like the old story in the Christian writings of the penny laborers. You know, like, what's fair? We worked harder. And, and, And David's like, listen, buddy. Listen, guys. They did something. They watched our stuff. They were too weak to do what we did, but but we all had a part. And we're gonna share and we're gonna share alike. In other words, that's how we wanna operate. That's the good operating policy in any place, right? Any company, any environment, any organization, that there are no less important jobs and more important jobs that these aren't the stars and these aren't the unimportant people that you dismiss. He says, when we win, we all win together. When we celebrate, we all celebrate together. We are going to share, and we are going to share alike. From then on, David made this a decree and a regulation for Israel, and it is still followed today. David's not even king yet, and yet he's already making a policy that he's going to carry into his kingdom someday that will set a precedent for Israel from that time on. And if those men who are upset about sharing the plunder, if those men are upset already, they're about to be more upset because David says of the remaining plunder that we're sharing, we're going to get a big chunk of that we're going to send it back to the cities of Judah that lost their stuff in these raids and get returned their stuff to them and extra and say, here's a gift from, from us to you because David says, those, that's our countrymen. We've been away for a long time. We're going to make sure they know that we're on their team still. We're going to send some plunder to them and say it's a gift from us to you. We're going to use our prosperity and our generosity to build some strong relationships with our friends because that's what God has allowed us to do. It's a powerful moment for David. David has seen a 180 from being ready to die to being ready to celebrate. Getting everything he lost back and so much more. But before we wrap this up. I want to share one more story. we got to put a bow on. we got to put a bow on this part about Saul and David in this end game moment they're having. So we're going to f- step back to Israel. What's going on with Saul? What's going on with the army? Chapter 31, verse 1 says, Now the Philistines attacked Israel and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the, on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Israel's just getting their tails kicked, Right? And the Philistines closed in on Saul and on his sons, and they killed three of Saul's sons. Jonathan, that was David's best friend, remember? They killed Jonathan, and Abinadab, and Melchishua. And if you understand how wars oftentimes work, the king may oftentimes be a safe distance away with forces around him overseeing the battle, but he's not up in the most dangerous spot in harm's way. But as as they begin to lose, the enemy's getting closer to the king's position. And he's becoming closer to danger. And now he's watched his sons who were here and there with their own groups. They've all been killed. And now the the enemy is getting closer to Saul. It says the fighting. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul. And the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. The foot soldiers are not close enough to use their swords to Saul, but they're getting closer. But the archers are close enough to fire the arrows. And Saul is mortally wounded. Verse 4, Saul groaned to his armor bearer. Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. Look, I'm dying. and If I'm still alive when they get to me, they're going to abuse me as the king. So please just finish me off before they get here. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer When his armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword, and he died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. That's the end of Saul's story, finally. It all ends right here. And really the beginning of the next chapter of David's. But that's coming later. I want to finish a couple details up about this battle scene. Verse number 8 says, The next day when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they would go out and strip the dead bodies of their armor and their weapons and any other valuables they would have on them. When the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount uh, Gilboa. So they cut off King Saul's head and stripped off his armor. Much like they did to Goliath back in the day, right? Cut off his head, stripped off his armor. Then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. They placed his armor in the temple of the Ashereths, and they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bethshan. And so what they're doing is they're taunting their, their conquered enemy king. Putting his armor and they they worshiped Dagon and the astral and all the that, that uh, the queen of heaven and all those their religions that they had. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they had cut his head off. They took his body and they fastened it to the wall of one of their cities as a total disrespect and disgusting taunt and a, dis, and a, and a, and a, and a disdain against against the king. Not just him, by the way. It says him here. The rest of the story says they, they, they also fastened his son's bodies, Jonathan and Melchishua and Abinadab's bodies, also to the wall next to their father in the wall of Bethshan. Well, to wrap, to, to wrap this part up, verse 11 says, But when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled throughout the night to Bethshan, and they took down the bodies of King Saul and his sons from, down from the wall. They brought them to Jabesh, where they burned the bodies. If they burned the bodies, no one could take them again and dishonor them anymore. So they gave them a proper cremation right there. Then they took their bones and they buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted for seven days. Then they honored Saul in his death after he was treated so terribly post-mortem. Now, this is the end of this season of David's life. And before we move on, we're going to move on to, for, sake of, for season two, if you please, of David's life. It's a much better one coming up. But before we get there, I want to come back to those principles that we laid out last week and tie them into the, to our lives again today, but from the other side. We said all along, slowly then suddenly, that's how life tends to work. Slowly then suddenly, we saw the negative application and we reviewed it earlier. But this also proves true positively, that sometimes it's slowly then suddenly, right? That you oftentimes don't know how close something is until it happens. That David's darkest moment was right before dawn. His his lowest moment was right before he got everything back, plus way more, and the person who's been trying to hunt him, look, Saul's been trying to hunt him and kill him, and Saul's dead. David doesn't know it yet. We're going to see, not this week, but a different time, that David finally hears about Saul's death. He's able to go back to his home country, to his home people. And he'll begin the process of ascending the throne of Israel, as we'll see later. But it's been a long, gruesome journey to get to this moment right here. Nothing's worked out very well. It's been slow. And then suddenly, everything that was at its lowest spot has turned around just like that. We gave you a Bible verse um, last week. I'm going to give you two of them together today. Not written by David. We've been looking at the Psalms lately. This one is written by David's son named Solomon who would later write a few of the books of wisdom literature in the Hebrew Scriptures. And his son Solomon um, would be a king, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. By the way, if you're ever a person going through like a midlife type crisis or some kind of tough season, read Ecclesiastes. It's gonna be dialing your zip code all day long. It's phenomenal. And and so in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes about this very topic, and and here's what he says. He says, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. and when, When people get to do the wrong thing and nothing happens because of it, Like we said last week and earlier today, slowly then suddenly, because there's this delay going on, they think, oh, look at me. There's no consequence. Nothing's happened. There's no fallout. So what's the big deal? And people feel it's safe to do wrong. But then Solomon adds this statement. He says, but even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. He's saying, I know that right now it might not look that way. Right now it might feel like that people are getting away with things they shouldn't get away with and they're doing fine and people are doing the right thing and it's not paying off very well. But that's right now. I'm looking, I'm saying straighten up and take the long look because I know that it will be well with those who fear God. I know that the this, this story's not over, that things tend to work out slowly and then suddenly. And like we said earlier about the consequences, so it is true about the reward. That there is almost always a delay between our choices and the reward. We know this in life, but it's true. Whether it's doing good things with your health and how you treat your body, exercise and diet and doing the right things, there's this delay. Isn't there? Like if you've ever tried to take care of your eating, start eating right and um. um exercising, and then like five days later or two months later, you're like, wait a minute. I don't look like Chris Hemsworth's stunt double quite yet. Something isn't working out very well. I'm done. You know, it's oftentimes a long journey between where you are and where you're trying to get to. Or your finances, you do the right thing and you handle your money right and you invest and and through ups and downs of life and seasons, it takes a while until the curve kicks in. Um, we've, thought, we've talked before in teaching principles of finances and health and life, that there's, that there's an oftentimes an exponential growth curve, right? That, that when you—it's it's, it's the, it's the magic of compounding interest in anything you do in life, including finances, of course. That, that we, when we do good things, we tend to think the progress is a constant dot of up the, up the chart up and to the Right? But it doesn't go that way. It feels like we, we underperform. We do the right thing and there's, the results are lagging. It feels flat as we keep doing the right thing. But if you keep at it long enough, the, 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 the exponential growth curve kicks in and it's just, a, it's just how it works in life. And between that, that, that space where we're waiting for the results and what we expect to happen is what we call the trough of disappointment. But at some point when you stay at it long enough, the, the, the curve happens. And it seems like it's slowly and then suddenly. This is not something that we're making up today. This is how it tends to work. Let's say it together. Ready? There is almost always a delay between our choices and the reward. That's just how life goes. It's our relationships. You invest in them and you're humble and you're kind and you're serving and you're forgiving and you do the right things. And not every person will respond well, but you'll find that you'll have healthy relationships around you. Even if some didn't respond well, you'll have so many fruitful ones because you are the person who played the way you're supposed to over a long and faithful period of time. Relationally, with your health, with your finances, negatively and positively, There's almost always a delay between our choices and their consequences or their reward. In fact, the delay, the delay convinces us that the reward will never come. But it does. You never know how close it is until it happens. So I want to encourage you today. to What did Paul say in Galatians? To not become discouraged and quit when you're doing good. Because in due season, at the proper time, you reap. Slowly, and then suddenly. Now tying this back to the long, slow process of just keeping on trusting God. That's what David did. It's a matter of faith. So let me leave off with a faith statement for you today. That faith in God is never a matter of what. It's always a matter of how and when. We can all articulate the what. It's God is good, God is there, and He cares, it'll, it'll be fine. That's easy. We struggle with things, but I don't see how it could possibly turn out good at this point. I don't see how this could be a good thing. I don't see how. Or when, God, when? That's where the struggle comes in. That's where faith really kicks in, in into our, our orbit. It's not a what. We can all sing about, talk about, nod our heads to the what. We can have the cliches and the little statements. We can post them on social media, embroider them onto our, our, uh, the walls of our house or whatever we want to do. But the truth is, is that faith in God is never a matter of what. It's always a matter of how and when. And that's what gets us in trouble is the how and the when. But that's what David had to do in our story today in our story throughout the last few weeks is he had to say, God, I don't know how it's going to work out and I sure don't know when it's going to work out. I got the what, but I'm waiting on the rest. But I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to follow you anyway. And I want to call us all today to be people of faith. No matter what you're facing and what's happening, say, God, I believe you're there. I believe you care. And I'm not going to lose faith over the how and the when. I'm going to trust you.